This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. Good Tuesday afternoon to you. Thank you for joining us live on AMI, AMI-audio, AMI-tv. For Kelly and Ramya, we've got you covered until 4 p.m. Eastern time with many things. I'm Ramya Amuthan joining you in Toronto. Kelly McDonald joining us from London, Ontario. Hey, Kels. Hey, Rum, sitting here uh, with some uh, the purple pillars behind me, the skyline of Toronto, and CN Tower hanging out over my left shoulder, of course, trademark Fedora. And that is a similar situation going on here at the set in Toronto. I've got my black bomber jacket on today over a light top. And joining us to hopefully not co-host the show, really, because we don't really Ooh, want to hear kidding. too much of him. But oh, I know have to give people the heads up in case you hear it, um, is my friend and dog, Glasgow. So he is also with me in studio today. First time since we launched on TV that he's in studio. So he's attached to my waist. Um, he'll nudge me if he needs anything and, or if he'll start being vocal. We'll find out. I wanted to remind everybody of the Dream Big contest because it's still in the midst. You can still sign up for your chance to win. It runs until February 8th, and you can enter for a chance to win a Temper Pro Adapt mattress. Tempur-Pedic mattresses are designed with one-of-a-kind temper material to precisely adapt to your weight, shape, and temperature, offering unmatched comfort and support. For the complete rules and how to enter, you can visit ami.ca slash krcontest. And that's the details on that. Let's find out what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Ramia. Are there any benefits, risks, pros, or cons to taking ice baths? We're going to find out more about that with wellness contributor Francis Wong. A new study has found a link regarding time spent scrolling and low self-esteem in teens. Margaret Weldon, she's going to be here later to chat a little bit about this with us. What are some ways that parents can promote literacy at home? This is a great conversation for people uh, in the disability community, and Lucia Belafonte is going to let us know more about that in the second hour of Kelly and Romeo. Okay, let's talk about some things going on in my neck of the woods around Toronto. Not good news. Police mm-hmm. in Toronto are investigating after up to 15 young people allegedly attacked two transit workers. Officers responded yesterday afternoon to what the Toronto Transit Commission describes as a despicable swarming and assault. Police allege a group of 10 to 15 youths, all of them male, attacked two TTC employees on a bus. Police describe the workers' injuries as minor and say no arrests have been made. The investigation comes just days after police say a TTC bus driver was shot with a BB gun on Saturday evening. Adam Burns, the Canadian Press, Toronto. The assault and harassment on TTC, on public transit, on wheel trans, which is our para service over here in Toronto, uh, I think is an ongoing conversation that gets and feels very disturbing. The more we talk about it, the more we figure out what's going on. And these are just some of the things making the news, by the way. In my opinion, there's a lot more going on, unreported, um, things that are not taken 
with this much attention that still go on day in, day out. I've been a public transit user for over 15 years, and the things that I experience on TTC, not necessarily firsthand, but just witness happening, are atrocious. You know, some of these things are that's just the word that comes to mind to describe it is uh, brutal, you know, brutal treatment of bus drivers, of uh, sometimes passengers as well. And I always think back to what goes on to assist mental health wise? What is TTC doing to help with mental health for bus drivers? Because this is kind of like a, a regular part of your job and your role. You're encountering all kinds of people all across the city during work. Makes you wonder how much of the actual training, getting ready, involves this stuff compared to what it used to and compared to what it'll be in the future. But I've heard this ongoing, and Ramya, you're so right that most of it, 95% of it, doesn't make the media. There seems to be some kind of targeting going on or, who knows, challenge or something somewhere, for all we know, that is is putting these folks uh, right, in the, right in the bullseye. Absolutely. And I... I don't know how much PSA and how much we can tackle this on a, you know, public, a general public level saying, hey, guys, can we can we talk more about this? Can we be more aware? Because people get frustrated. It's public transit. Anything and everything can go wrong. So uh, you're right. I think it comes back down to the training um, and other levels of help and assistance that we can. Well, offer. And, and, and even if these things are those silly challenges out there. People not meaning what we would say real harm, like just leave people alone. But besides that, they get out of hand when you talk swarming multiple mm -hmm. people. There's always somebody that goes way too far. And it's like similar a to baby gun. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's wow. similar to the way we would think about, you know, customer service representatives, right? Like we get mad and our services aren't going well or something where something got us peeved for the day and now we take it out on the customer service rep who happens to pick up the phone when we call Rogers as an example not saying Rogers but it's the same thing for TTC right maybe you're not happy with the fare maybe you're not happy with the system with the whatever's going on throughout your day and you'll mm -hmm. take it out on the driver um, that doesn't sound like an accurate definition of what went on with this particular example because this particular example was 15 people on one bus driver or two. So that doesn't sound great to me at all. Um, but in any case, you know, let's bring it to light and let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Taking a break now. We didn't get to the second item, but maybe we can throw it in sometime later. We're taking a break and coming back to talk about vaccines for pets. Uh, our veterinarian, Dr. Danielle Jeankind, will give us more information on this. That's Ask a Vet in two minutes on Kelly and Ramya. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Back with us on Kelly and Ramya here on Accessible Media. And Kelly and I were swapping some athletic stories over the break. Well, not really stories, just like ping-ponging. Kels, you've done curling. You, which yes. I just found out. Maybe I already knew and forgot. Uh, you've also done wrestling. Anything else? Major? Uh, Sports-wise? Yeah. Well, the, the blind hockey stuff years ago, baseball, football. Um, I used to be on the swim team. I tried running once. That was enough of that. 
<laughs> I'm trying to think if I've I've I haven't had that chance to try beat ball like I really wanted to. But yeah, I, I competitively swam for a while and competitively wrestled uh, and goalball, of course. Wow. Just so much sports background. Uh, whereas me, I well, avoided... And of course, track and field, you sure. know, but that's yes. messing around, certainly not on a real competitive level. Cool Sorry, days. go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that I avoided sports all my life and I'm finally into something, which is soccer. Not to say I avoided physical activity my, my entire life, but just sports. There's competitive a sports. Right? Yeah. There's a yeah. And do you like the soccer, don't you? I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Why? For a non-sports person, how come? Well, what, what? I think it's, you know, we can get really into this, but it, oh, throughout my life, I just felt unaccommodated. There wasn't, I grew up in integrated school and sports just wasn't uh, really an option Accessible. for me. Yes. Mm -hmm. And now yeah. that it is, it's fantastic. Well, I think going to WRS, that made the difference for me, getting a chance to do the things that I did. I mean, wrestling against other people in Brant County and then... Uh, uh, going on to goalball and playing on a you know pro provincial level, playing teams from across Canada right. and stuff. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm sorry th that I didn't actually continue it, but other things got uh, got in the way. Ramya, it's that time on the program to welcome in our veterinarian, Danielle Johnkai. Whether they provide us with companionship and income, food, or serve a critical role in the ecosystems that support us, animals are vital to human health. Have fun with us as we learn about animal-related topics and about the amazing bond we share with our animal friends. Last week on the program, Dr. Danielle talked about some of the science that's behind infectious disease and about things that we can do to help keep our pets healthy. This week, she's going to talk to us about vaccines for dogs and cats. What are the current recommendations and... Why are they recommended? What are the known side effects to vaccines? Are there alternatives to vaccination? And what are those? We're looking forward to continuing these discussions today on the program. Uh, Danielle, welcome back. And big question I think that most of us would want to know, just because we do that for ourselves, our children, why not our pets? How do veterinarians decide what vaccines are recommended for their patients? Well, you know, um, general guidelines exist, of course, you know, but um, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to vaccination for pets. So, you know, your vet evaluates your pet's health, their lifestyle, and the risks versus benefits of vaccination for each patient every time they come in for a checkup. Because, of course, you know, they don't stay in the same situation their whole entire life. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of pets will have their needs met by following the established vaccination guidelines. Um, but it's important to recognize that some of them will need a much more individualized approach because of their unique circumstances. So, for example, they may already have an illness that we know will be aggravated by vaccination, or um, they may be at risk for picking up an infectious disease. So, you know, these sort of situations um, might prompt their vet to, you know, either not recommend a vaccination or in the case of being at risk for picking up an infectious disease, it might suggest to them, you know, you might want to add some other vaccines to your pet's, um, yes. pet's regimen. And of course, you know, clients um, often have, you know, concerns about vaccination and, you know, they've read a lot of stuff or, you know, they, they um, have had experiences themselves and so they have questions about whether an animal should be vaccinated or not. And I think mm -hmm. it's really important that, you know, you have those discussions with your veterinarian, get their 
side of the story, their opinion, and, you know, sometimes just the very act of getting more information is enough to, you know, um, to allay some of those fears or concerns and, uh, you know, help you make a better decision. So what are the general recommendations that uh, come with vaccines for our pets? Well, you know, in Ontario, at least, um, rabies vaccination is required for all dogs and cats. Um, I hear a lot of comments from clients that indoor cats shouldn't need rabies vaccines, but actually I have to disagree with that. You know, um, rabies is capable of infecting a lot of mammals, including mice and bats, you know, both of which are critters which make it into our homes on a regular basis. Um, it circulates in wildlife, you know, ensuring that we'll never really be able to get rid of it. And rabies is one nasty virus, you know, it can infect people just as easily as it infects our pets. And the CDC in the U.S. reports there are about 59,000 people that die from rabies worldwide every year, most of them, of course, not in North America. But, you know, if a person gets clinical signs of rabies, the probability they'll die from it is actually as high as 99%. Um, vaccinating your pets against this disease really could save their life, it could save your life and the lives of everyone your pet comes into contact with. And so it's recommended to give puppies and kittens their first rabies vaccine between three and four months of age, um, and they get a booster one year later, and then every one to three years after that, depending on which type of vaccine is given. Um, of course, for dogs, you know, there's another vaccine we recommend for just about all dogs. And it's a combination vaccine for four different viral diseases. Uh, we'll call it DHPP for short. <laughs> there are These are viral diseases, of course, so antibiotics will have no direct effect against these pathogens. Um, parvovirus, one of the Ps in that DHPP, is very hardy in the environment, and it's transmitted in feces. And it's possible to bring it home just by stepping in dog poop when you're out and about. And the other one, the D8 distemper, is always circulating in wild raccoons, many of which live in our cities and towns and can serve as a reservoir of potential infection for our dogs, the vast majority of whom are walked outdoors and are let out into yards. And, you know, the immunity that puppies get from their mothers, you know, while they're nursing, um, sometimes interferes with vaccines. So we give three doses of this particular vaccine at two, three, and four months of age a booster a year later, and then another booster every one to three years after that, depending on the vaccine that was given. And cats have their own version of this distemper disease called panleukopenia, and they're prone to upper respiratory viruses as well. So those are combined into a vaccine most vets refer to as the FVRCP vaccine. And like puppies with their vaccine, you know, cats get this one at two, three, and four months of age, again, a year later, and every one to three years after that. Fantastic. And, you know, all Great. Of, yeah, yeah. And all of these are what we call core vaccines. So they're recommended for the vast majority of dogs and cats. Right. And, of course, there are other non-core vaccines available that are recommended depending on the lifestyle and the health status of the pet. Okay, well, let's touch on those, Danielle. What non-core vaccines are available for dogs and cats, and when might they be recommended? Well, I won't go into an exhaustive list here, but, you know, I'll probably list only the most common ones that, you know, we, we use kind of in this neck of the woods. Um, so for dogs, we often recommend the Bordetella vaccine, which is also known as the kennel cough vaccine. And we recommend it for dogs that are likely to be sharing airspace or coming nose to nose with other dogs that they don't live with, you know. So generally, this means any dog going to a groomer, 
a boarding or a training facility, any dog going to a leash-free park, anyone going to dog shows, or one who's enrolled in classes for things like dog sports or obedience training. Um, leptospirosis is another vaccine, and it's recommended for dogs who might be in contact with wildlife urine. So if you have raccoons in your backyard, that's a good indication maybe lepto should be something you consider. Um, or, you know, dogs who drink from potentially contaminated water, like ponds, lakes, and rivers. And vaccination for Lyme disease is also available for dogs who get a lot of ticks or who spend lots of time in the woods and the long grass where ticks are more likely to be found. So, for example, dogs that go cottaging, camping, and hiking. For cats, um, the main non-core vaccine is for feline leukemia virus. Uh, cats that go outdoors and who may be fighting with other cats or sharing food, water, and bathroom areas with stray cats, you know, are recommended to have this vaccine. Um, the American Association of Feline Practitioners actually even recommends kittens under one year of age get that vaccine as well, and then continue it into adulthood only if they're at higher risk of being infected. It's um, interesting to hear about the comparisons between the dogs and the cat core vaccines and, and non core vaccines, Danielle, because especially thinking of uh, dogs more as do animals that get out, you know, go out more and the outdoor kind of things, uh, socializing and water contamination, all that stuff versus, you know, indoor cats. My dog, Glizzy, who's here today, has a question as well, which is the side effects for vaccines. He's pretty good with his vaccines, but just curious about that. Sure. Well, you know, in the vast majority of cases, you won't see any side effects at all. Um, it isn't unusual for a pet to be a little quieter or sleepier for the first one to two days after a vaccine. And that's nothing to worry about, you know, as long as they seem fine otherwise. Um, rarely a lump can form at the site of the vaccination, and a lot of these will go away over time. If they don't, you know, your vet might recommend remove that, like removing that lump, and that's called a local vaccine reaction. Um, side effects that you do need to worry about are indications that the pet's immune system is reacting inappropriately to the vaccine. So I kind of liken this like to using a mall to crack open a walnut when you could have just used a nutcracker. So, you know, the end result is that the immune system is overreacting to a perceived threat. And signs of that happening might include facial swelling, hives, vomiting, diarrhea within an hour or two of receiving the vaccine. Um, this does not happen often, you know, but your veterinarian will want to see your pet if it does so they can give medication to calm this overreaction down. And then, of course, they'll advise you on whether they feel it's advisable, advisable or appropriate to vaccinate your pet in the future. Um, the most serious immediate reactions to vaccination are even more rare and can cause an animal to go into what's called anaphylactic shock. And to give you an idea of how rare that is, in my almost 24 years of practice, I've never seen this happen personally and only heard of it happening to two other times. So one of those times wasn't even in response to a vaccine. So the risk of that is pretty minimal. Um, and as far as long-term side effects of vaccines go, um, the companies will maintain databases of, you know, reactions and possible things. Um, so, you know, they're usually pretty good about, you know, putting those things out there and the drug regulators will remove vaccines from the market if they seem to have problems over the long term. And some of the other ones that you hear about, you know, um, on the internet and stuff like that, it's really hard to prove, you know, whether any of those things are caused um, by vaccination. So, you know, it's not really something that we can definitively say yes or no. 
So it's a little bit, you know, sometimes the jury is out on a lot of those questions and it comes down to what people believe really, yeah. <laughs> you know, as, a, as, a, as opposed to what we can prove, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Danielle, let's talk about alternatives to vaccination for those kind of curious about that. For sure. And, you know, when I do talk about this with clients who are vehemently opposed to vaccination, um, we always make the recommendation that we feel is best for their pets. But of course, you know, if um, if there's some reason that they really don't want to do it, you know, as long as they're aware of the possible consequences of their decision, then we certainly will talk about alternatives to vaccines. So unfortunately, there's nothing we can give besides a vaccine to train a pet's immune system to recognize a disease agent before they become naturally infected. Once they're naturally infected, you know, you just have to kind of hope that the organism causing the infection is not very nasty. <laughs> and on yes. the flip side, that your pet's system can handle the infection and deal with it effectively. And of course, vets can certainly help support a sick pet through an infection with things, you know, like fluid therapy, antibiotics if they're indicated, and pain medication. Um, people can also minimize the risk their pet will pick up an infectious disease. And some suggestions for doing that, you know, avoiding raw food. Um, avoiding contact with other animals that, you know, could potentially be infected. So, you know, dogs you don't know, wild animals, that kind of thing. Um, you can also prevent your pet from drinking out of groundwater sources, you know, so that no ponds, lakes, rivers. Um, don't allow right. them to eat feces from other animals, too, because they can pick up okay. parasites and infectious things there. Um, Danielle will have to call it a... Stop there and make the backyard okay. obviously safer and that but we will carry yeah. on next week. Thanks a lot, Danielle. Take care. You're Danielle John Kine joins us every week at this time for Ask a Veterinarian here on the program. And after the break, we're checking in with Francis Wong, who joins us bi-weekly for wellness. We'll be right back. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. Welcome to Kelly and Ramya on AMI. And just at the start of the last segment, we were talking about sports, which is very fitting for the conversation we're about to get into. Let's talk about the the health the world of health and wellness <laughs> with Francis Wong. Hello, I'm Francis Wong, and I invite you to join me as we explore topics of health and wellness so that you can make the best choices for you to live an informed and radiant life. Francis, we're talking a bit New Year's-ish, just to start off things, okay, we're not going to like uh, keep into this, but when it comes to New Year's traditions, alongside the regular New Year's resolutions that people make, there's this popular polar bear dive, and it's over for 2023, I think, but I need to ask, why do people do this, and are there any risks or benefits associated with it? Thanks, Aurelia. I thought that since we talked about isolation tanks in the past, um, with relaxing in a tank of warm salt water, that it would be fun to talk about the other extreme. Now, this is definitely not as relaxing as a float tank, but I guarantee you that it will absolutely wake you up and make you feel alive. 
And while I have experienced float tanks multiple times, I have not had the desire to do the polar bear swim myself. Although I have done water circuits where I sat in a hot tub and then followed it up with a quick cold dip. And by quick, I mean quick. So <laughs> first of all, let's talk about what this polar bear swim is for those audience members who may not be familiar with this tradition. Just like New Year's resolutions, this happens once a year, traditionally on January 1st. And what this is, is it's an event sometimes known by slightly different names like the polar bear plunge or polar bear dip. And the first one that took place, um, just took place over a hundred years ago, back in 1920, out of Vancouver by a group of swimmers who called themselves the Polar Bear Club. These swimmers, or polar bears as they would refer to themselves as, would head into the water regardless of the temperature for a quick swim or dip and then turn around and head back to shore. Now, the Globe and Mail wrote an article about this event occurring on Christmas Day in 1924, but by 1945, it had moved over to New Year's Day, which is the same tradition today. Today, the polar bear swim uh, or dip or penguin plunge um, is often used to raise funds for charitable organizations. Now, have either of you attempted this before? Mm -mm. And if so, what was no, your experience? No, no not no. polar bear. Done like no. other kind right. of things, probably closer to the ice bath situation. But even that, I don't think I can say I have. Yeah, I've done the snow bath when I was shooting blindsided. We went out yeah. to Quebec City for the festival and we heated up uh, for about a half hour at about 35 degrees Celsius, jumped around, rose our body temperatures and then went running out in T-shirts and shorts into Ooh. the minus 28 degrees uh, that was out there. And uh, people, of course, made the mistake, Francis, they start picking up snow and throwing because you're so hot and they're yelling at you, don't, don't throw the snow on yourself because you'll burn yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so uh, I yeah. can't answer your question as to why people do this around you, but my guess would be that some do it as a dare and others like to see if they can test themselves. And maybe others have done this as a tradition, but I can talk about a similar practice, which is ice baths. What do you guys know about ice baths? Um, you said you haven't really done the polar bear swim. Have you done an ice bath? Um, and the no. bucket challenge doesn't count. So uh, if you guys remember yeah, that. Yeah, that yes, was fun. Yes, yes, um, um, yes. No, I, I haven't done it. I just know the athletes, a lot of them after games, especially the basketball players, uh, always talk about it. You know, they that, that they go and they do it. I think they spend about 15 minutes in the ice bath, but don't really have a concept of, I just, wow, that's a lot of ice cubes to lay on. Yeah, no, I don't know if there's actual ice cubes, but I have seen pro athletes get into ice bath and uh, freeze. <laughs> but it's like just super cold water. Now, I don't know anything around how long you're supposed to or any of that. The only thing I've done is cold shower, right, where you just crank sure. the, the shower on cold by the end of your, for the last minute right. or two. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, Kelly was right about the time frame. So we'll talk about that later. But what's interesting is that ice baths have been around for a very long time and goes back a well past the 1920s. We can trace this going back to both the Egyptians and the Greeks. Um, back in 1862, a man by the name of Edwin Smith bought an ancient Egyptian medical text, which today is named after him as the Edwin Smith Papyrus. This is one of the oldest known medical treaties on trauma, and it's believed it could going back to around 3000 BC. The text outlines specific medical procedures, including the use of cold applications for skin irritation. 
And then if you look at Greece, Hippocrates, who is known as the father of modern medicine, is usually credited for coming up with the theory of the four humors or fluids. And we know that this is this idea is now incorrect. But back then, the idea was that particular humors being out of balance would affect someone's health in a detrimental way. So in one of the treatments, he suggested that cold water could be used for high fevers. And snow, as Kelly mentioned, was used mm -hmm. on open wounds to stop the bleeding. So ice baths are pretty much how they sound. Basically, you're dipping yourself in very cold water from 10 to 15 degrees Celsius for 10 to 15 minutes. Ice baths are used commonly by athletes and fitness enthusiasts after a workout or physical activity. And it's also called cold water immersion or CWI. This practice has been going on for decades, but more recently, a 2017 study published in the Journal of Physiology seemed to suggest that cold water immersion is no greater than active recovery upon local and systemic infl inflammatory cellular stress in humans. However, there are some doctors that still, still agree that just because it hasn't been proven that there is a huge benefit doesn't mean that there's no benefits. Mm. Also, I want to mention that the study was very limited with only a sample size of nine young men who were doing resistance training a couple times a week. This is hardly enough to base all conclusions off of. So more studies are needed to be able to paint a clearer picture of the pros and cons of ice bath. And I also wanted wow. to mention that sometimes this is also referred to as cryotherapy, which is any treatment that involves the use of a freezing or near freezing temperature. I However, thought it because it was modern... so cold it makes you cry, but never mind. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's actually a probably in a secondary response. meaning. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, modern cryotherapy can be done in a room without water. So you're in a room or a chamber for a few minutes where the temperatures get down way lower, way colder to minus 100 or 140 degrees Celsius. And because these treatments can be very expensive, ice baths are the poor man's version. And that is something that you can do in the privacy of your own home at very little cost, at least financially speaking. I can't speak to your mental state, though. <laughs> Oh man! Well, like you said, the Brummie, the, the crying, and I've I've even felt that just with a pack of ice being put on a sore ankle. Right. Oh, I can't imagine anyone voluntarily jumping into the cold water. So, for what we can see, what kind of benefits are these people who are doing it, such as said athletes? Uh, what are they getting out of it? And, and is it just mainly a belief, or for them, as far as we know, is there proven results? Right. So experts in the field, including doctors, still think that there are some benefits to ice baths. Um, they argue that the study doesn't prove that there's no benefits. And so they still recommend these to professional athletes. This is going to be vary from person to person. So if you're interested in trying an ice bath, it's a good idea to check with your doctor if this is something that's suitable for you. I'm going to go over some of the potential benefits of ice baths that Dr. Brian Gardner, an orthopedic surgeon with the Center for Advanced Orthopedics, says is possible. So he gives some examples such as making the body feel good. And this makes sense. After a hard workout where you sweated a lot, a nice cold immersion can relieve sore muscles. At the same time, another theory that Dr. Thanu Jay of the Yorkville Sports Medicine Clinic suggests that it's taking an ice bath after exercising can help limit the inflammatory response, which means you can recover faster. And Gardner also says that it can help your central nervous system with improved reaction times in future workouts and better sleep with less fatigue. We've talked about ice baths after a workout. So this is a benefit that is a bit odd in that 
the ice bath comes before the workout. Gardner says that these ice baths decrease the effect of heat and humidity. And this is particularly useful for athletes who may be going into a race condition where there's a lot of heat. So doing the ice bath before a long race can help the athlete improve their performance by lowering their core body temperature by a few degrees. And another major benefit that RMS um, Jutka, a strength and condition specialist names, is that of training your vagus nerve. Since this is linked to your parasympathetic nervous system, if you train it, it can help you st handle stress better. Mm. Okay. Sounds really um, good. I mean, of various reasons or at least theories around what could it be, what it could be benefit for. But how about the risks? Are there risks associated associated with taking ice baths? I'm assuming yes. Yes, everything has a risk, of course, um, but certain people should definitely stay away from taking ice baths. And that includes pregnant women, as it isn't clear how the baths can affect the babies. Um, as well, if you're diabetic with type 1 or type 2, you'll be want to be careful since it's harder for the body to maintain the core temperature with such an extreme temperature change. People who have pre-existing cardiovascular disease or high blood pressure will want to avoid taking part as the constriction of blood vessels um, and slowdown of the blood flow can increase one's risk for cardiac arrest or stroke. And it can be shocking to someone when they hit the water at that temperature. So there could be a risk of drowning if the person jumps into the water and then they submerge their head and then they try to gasp for air. So of course, the risk of staying in an ice bath too long is hypothermia. Although if it was me, I'd be in and out of there so fast, you wouldn't even have seen me. I know people used to do that with heat, do, do the sauna and whatever, and then go try to jump in a cold yeah. pool. And, you know, they'd say, well, you really shouldn't do that. And I, I don't know really, you know, again, if you have a heart condition or, or some of the areas that you've out, you know, line, outlined there, I definitely would think the same thing. But when it comes to a regular person or someone who isn't performing at a professional level, what can someone do to prepare themselves uh, if they do want to try it out and take an ice bath? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, it's a good idea to get the okay from your doctor first. For something like the polar bear swim, while it can be tempting to rush in and out of the water, the Canadian Red Cross um, suggests that you only remove your clothes right before you enter the water and then to wear aqua boots or surf boots to st stop your feet from sticking to the snowy shore and to prevent cuts and bruises to your feet. Um, have a towel and dry clothes at the ready and make sure there are other people who can spot you. And the Canadian Red Cross also suggests limiting the time in the water to no more than two minutes. If you're looking oh. at ice baths at home, Use a thermometer to confirm the temperature, adding ice if the water is too warm and adding warm water if the water is too cold until you hit that perfect sweet spot between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius. Are you guys the type who like to rip the Band-Aid off or peel it back slowly? Uh, definitely mm. rip a Band-Aid. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. So Dr. Gardner recommends immersing your whole body in ice to get the most benefits of blood vessel constriction. However, if that's too much, and I'd say so, you can start with your feet and lower your lower legs and then slowly no move your way. chest in. As I would chicken timing. out by that point. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> 
As for the timing of the ice bath, it's best after a workout when your body hasn't started the healing and inflammatory response process yet. If you wait an hour after you're, work you're working out, then the benefit won't be as strongly and as noticeable. And it's similar to having an ice cream on a hot day. Much more enjoyable having it when it's hot in the sun than when after the sun has set and the temperature has already cooled. Regardless, experts agree that ice baths should be restricted to short-term use. Gosh, quick second, but where are we today with this type of cold therapy? I'm glad you asked. Have you guys heard of the Wim Hof method? No. No. He is a Dutch extreme athlete who has the nickname of the Iceman. And in fact, he has held 21 Guinness World Records, including swimming under ice and prolonged full body contact with ice, as well as holding a record for a barefoot half marathon on ice and snow. He has used cold, hard nature as a teacher and learned how to control his breathing, heart rate, and blood circulation, and to withstand extreme temperatures. So I suggest if listeners are interested, you can check out his website, Wim Hof, is W-I-M-H-O-F, for more information and the science behind his methodology. And he has three pillars. One is the breathing exercises. Another is a commitment of meditation. And the last pillar is cold exposure training. Amazing. So now, Francis, if you're we interested go. in Oh, all right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Way to uh, rip the Band-Aid off the cold and ice baths. We're taking a break and coming back with Nathan Sartori to find out about an upcoming performance in Toronto. We'll be back. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Thanks for tuning in. This is Kelly and Ramia on AMI. Shout out to AMI Audio, AMI TV. And we will be giving you some previews of podcasts dropping this week that you can check out on AMI Audio. They're also available as video podcasts on YouTube and available on your podcast platform. But that information to come a little later on. I'm Ramia Amadin joining you from Toronto. And Kelly McDonald joins us from London, Ontario. Ah, yes. All settled back in, folks, as we continue through the show and so much ahead to talk about. Uh, Eiley American Dance Theatre returns to Toronto's Meridian Hall uh, this February 3rd and 4th for two very exciting mixed programs. The 2 p.m. Uh, performance on Saturday, February 4th, will have audio description. Our friend Rebecca Singh will be there as she's with Superior Description Services. Uh, Nathan Sartori. Our program um, coordinator for TO Live tells us more about the upcoming show as Nathan joins us. Welcome back, Nathan. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me and very exciting to be on TV this time around. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just thought we'd change it up on you and just like make it, oh, really? Um, and thank yeah. you for reaching out to us to keep us posted always on these fantastic shows and the stuff that you guys have going on. So let's go back for people who are new to our show and haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Tell us about the live and your mission, please. Sure thing, yeah. So TO Live is an amalgamation of three civic theatres in Toronto. Uh, the amalgamation came about in 2017. So uh, the three venues that we run and manage and program for are Meridian Hall, better known as the Sony Centre, 
St. Lawrence Centre for the Arts and Meridian Arts Centre in North York, which used to be called the Toronto Centre for the Arts. Um, we do a lot of our own programming, whether it be theatre, dance, circus, comedy, you name it. Uh, and I'm here to assist with all of that programming and specifically uh, to increase access for all of our performances, including with audio description, um, and especially with this upcoming performance with Alvin Ailey, American Dance Theatre. Oh, that's awesome. So tell us about the Ailey American uh, Dance Theatre. What can, okay, let's talk about the theatre first and then about the performance. Sure, yeah. So Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre has been around since the 1960s. Alvin Ailey was a very prominent uh, dancer, uh, specifically in New York, but all over across America, uh, and uh, came together with a group of dancers in the 1960s. So we see some beautiful footage right now on your screens. Um, to, to create space specifically for black American dance um, and, and really creating space and, and creating opportunity. Um, but now Alvin Ailey after 60 years has become, I would, I would say the most prominent contemporary dance company in the world. Um, so we're really wow. honored to have them join us in Meridian Hall. It's their sixth time uh, on our stage and we're very excited to welcome them back. Um, the performance specifically, uh, every time they come, they perform different repertoire. So they have one piece that's called Revelations. It's always the final piece of every single performance. And Revelations was a, a piece that Alvin Ailey himself created in the 60s, and it became, it, it hit it off. So that's, that's a key part of every Alvin Ailey performance. And then whether you come um, for the audio described performance specifically, uh, you will see uh, also a set of four different works along with revelations to accompany that work. A uh, lot of it is a lot of new work, but there is some 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 uh, key and traditional works that, uh, uh, that Alvin Ailey always brings around with them. Wow. Hmm. When you are watching their shows, Nathan, what would you say is the prolific difference that makes them uh, ahead of other troops that are out there doing doing shows, doing performance, doing dance? Um, in your own personal opinion, what makes it, especially after seeing six shows as you guys have had and so much other um, information on them, mm -hmm. what makes them jump out? Can you tell us as as that artist that you know you, you know what yeah. to look for? That's a great question, Kelly. Uh, I would say uh, the emotion that all of the dancers resonate. It's a company of 32 dancers uh, from around the world. Uh, we're very lucky uh, this time around to have a dancer from Toronto, which we are very excited about. Um, but I think it's the emotion, not only behind the choreography, but behind all of the dancers. There's such passion and commitment to all of the work that they do. Um, and of course, with the history of the company and of yeah. this work, uh, it's it's important dance and meaningful dance and beautiful dance. Right. So you're not only going to see uh, a very technically excellent piece of dance, you're also going to experience a story and experience unexperience. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's wow. so beautifully said, and I really and how lifting. Yes, to be a part of that. Yes. I got this impression Absolutely. when you said that, um, you know, the, the the intention behind the company itself, behind the theater and behind what is um, being brought to us, right? The story just felt like it was going to be significant because of that. What can audience expect? Because you talked a little bit about the audio described performance. 
experience, see, feel, you know, what are we in for for the audio described performance? Absolutely. So Rami, I might pass this back to you at the end because you have experienced some of our audio described performances here at TO Live, but we are working with Rebecca Singh, uh, as Kelly mentioned, and her colleague, James McKenzie, both of Superior Description Services. Uh, they're incredible describers and they have described many pieces of dance before. James actually has described for Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre previously. Um, so we're very thrilled to have of course, top-notch uh, describers with us for this performance. Um, so you'll uh, join us here at Meridian Hall, which is at the corners of Front Street and Young Street, right downtown Toronto. You'll join us and, and get a audio description receiver. So everyone receives an individual receiver that they'll be able to listen into uh, and hear Rebecca and James's description throughout the performance. Amazing. Fantastic. I also really want to shout great. out the team right behind TO Live, behind everyone who puts this together because um, the reception is incredible and people are so hospitable. The team is so amazing. So as soon as you, you know, get to the doors of the venue, uh, your experience is very inclusive, very accessible. So uh, along with the audio description, I think the entire experience, as far as I've had, has been stellar. So then... Let's cover the other accessibility uh, services that are available at the venue. Certainly, yeah. So with every one of our TO Live presentations, we offer both an access guide and pre-show audio notes so that folks can learn more about uh, the venue and about the piece on our website. So those live on mm -hmm. tolive.com, where you'll be able to access those documents. Uh, specifically for Alvin Ailey, those are the three access measures that we are providing with this performance. But every single performance that we present during the season has a uniquely crafted set of access measures, whether that be audio description, ASL interpretation, relaxed performance. And so it's always great to keep an eye on the website, which again is tolive.com, and to find out exactly what uh, access measures are being provided for every single performance. In terms of the venue, it's a totally wheelchair accessible venue. There are accessible universal barrier-free washrooms, including gender neutral washrooms. It's a very large venue. There's a lot of space for movement. Um, and uh, we hope that everyone can, can join us and, and truly access and engage in this experience. So Nathan, I have to ask, because now we've got a few moments and I'd like people to get an idea when we talk about the audio description of a live event such as this, can you talk a little bit about the process ahead of time that uh, James and Rebecca will be going through? Absolutely. It's, it's, quite a hefty amount of work and uh, hats off to Rebecca and James and all audio describers in live performance. Um, with a dance piece specifically, and we're very grateful since Alvin Ailey is a very uh, established company and have procedures in place, we were able to provide Rebecca and James with videos of all of the repertoire oh. that they'll be performing. And because Alvin Ailey is very well known for its touring, all of the pieces sure. and videos that we were able to provide were exactly as they'll be shown at our theater. And so they can watch this ahead of time, despite them not actually being able to see a performance in Toronto in Meridian Hall uh, before the audio described performance, they'll be able to review these videos and they create an entirely unique script, um, mm. ensuring that all of those visual elements, the smallest things are all picked up on in this script and in their description. It's, it's beautiful and incredible and, and fantastic. 
Yeah, and they have, by having those videos at their disposal, they're able to make sure what they write into their script is what we get to hear about. So we have the privilege of being able to get something that breezes into town, does a performance, and is gone without us yeah. having to say, well, we can't really provide that because there's not enough preparatory time for our description team. These guys got it nailed. Yes. They are the perfect team. <laughs> right. And Wonderful. speaking of preparatory time, I, I just also wanted to put in a note that usually um, with superior description, and, and this is kind of becoming a norm in all live audio description for theater and dance and other performance, is that Rebecca and James will give you introductory notes before the performance itself, which is very uh, helpful because you get all the information about, you know, details for costumes and set and uh, the theater itself, the space you're sitting in, your surroundings and all the other interesting things that may come up throughout the performance that they won't necessarily have time for to describe in detail uh, throughout the performance. They'll do it beforehand for the first, you know, 10 minutes prior to and then they'll get into it. So all the the live stuff is very movement based and what's happening in real time. And it's it's super important um, that we get that and they've been implementing it into their description. And Nathan, you have Absolutely. that stuff on online too, right? I, I think some of that content lives right there on site. That's right. Yeah. So the pre-show audio notes that are available on our website are provided, far, provided pardon me, far in advance. Um, but the specific introductory notes for the audio described performance will be sent out uh, in written form before the performance oh, so that folks uh, who are unable to arrive on time or, or to listen into uh, that, that usually begins about 10 to 15 minutes before the performance, they can have that in their emails and access it even before arriving at the theater. So they get an understanding of, of, what they're about to experience. Fabulous. Amazing. Nathan, give us the site one more time. Like, where can we go to uh, find out more information? And also, before we go, if there's any other upcoming performances you want to tease or shout out, feel free. <laughs> Absolutely. So the website is tolive.com. That's T-O-L-I-V-E.com. That has all of information about Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre, which is next Friday and Saturday, February 3 and 4 at Meridian Hall, with the audio described performance being next Saturday, February 4 at 2 p.m. In terms of upcoming performances, you can also see some more information about that on our website. But teasers in terms of audio description, I got your back. Uh, we have another <laughs> dance performance coming up mid-March. I will come back to you with firm details. You know, Kelly and Ramya, I'll send you a note to, to confirm. Uh, we have one coming up in June. I'm missing one. There might actually be two in March. So uh, be sure to check out the website, but also stay tuned um, onto Kelly and Ramya, as always, to find out uh, about these opportunities. As usual, as always. Thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate you joining us and keeping us informed. And good luck with this season as it continues. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And, and congrats on being on TV. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Take Nathan. Care. <laughs> Take care. Uh, that was uh, Nathan Sartori. Program coordinator with uh, TO Live. So much going on for those folks. Try to make the show if you can. It, it sounds tremendous. Yes, it does. And we'll have all the information up on our blog, ami.ca slash Kelly Co. Uh, it's going to be a really fun time. My co-host had a lot to say about that as well. Anyways, next hour of Kelly and Remya, we're talking about a new study found about 
less, more scrolling leading to less self-esteem. We're going to talk more about that with Margaret Weldon. Also, what are some ways that parents can provide literacy at home? Talk about it with Lucia Belafonte. But after the break, we're talking about space. We'll be right back. Kelly and Romia. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.